Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson, and today we are going to explore some not-so-distant feminist history, the 90s. You might remember, or you may have learned since then, that 1992 was actually called the Year of the Woman. And that's because the number of women elected to Congress here in the United States jumped up by two-thirds. It was the biggest increase in U.S. history. But just six years later, Time magazine actually accused the younger generation of being politically inactive. And the cover of the magazine asked if feminism was dead. So how important were the 90s in feminist history and how did they shape the place we're in today? Well, today we're going to speak with Lisa Levenstein to find out. Now, I had always been really suspicious of this narrative about feminism being dead. (laughs) And when I started going to the archives and conducting oral histories and looking at the forms of activism that weren't getting the attention of the reporters from Time magazine, I found that, in fact, this wasn't just a dead decade. This was actually one of the most pivotal decades, I believe, for feminist history. Lisa is the director of the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Program at the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. And she is also the author of a new book called They Didn't See Us Coming, The Hidden History of Feminism in the 90s. Lisa, hey. Thanks for having me. So right off the bat, I want to be clear, this is not just a book about white feminism of 30 years ago. This is an intersectional look at what was going on in the 90s. And the 90s are really interesting for me in particular because I was born in 1985. Mm. So I feel like I still am kind of reframing what a lot of those historical events that happened in the 90s were and how they kind of fit into feminism because for a lot of them I was like nine years old. Right. Um, So can you tell us about some of the like touchstone events of the 90s that you think impacted feminism the most kind of during that time? Absolutely. Well, one of the events that really caught my eye at the beginning because I too lived through the 90s. I was a decade older than you. Um, mm. But was the 1995 Beijing Women's Conference. Yeah. Now, in the United States, the media coverage of this co- conference was almost exclusively about who, then First Lady Hillary Clinton, who gave a widely celebrated speech at the conference. What we are learning around the world is that if women are healthy and educated, their families will flourish. If women are free from violence, their families will flourish. If women have a chance to work and earn as full and equal partners in society, their families will flourish. 
and when families flourish, communities and nations do as well. That is why every woman, every man, every child, every family, and every nation on this planet does have a stake in the discussion that takes place here. So, yeah, Lisa, this is essentially the women's rights or human rights argument. Why was that such a monumental moment? Right. Well, the speech goes on and Clinton says women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights once and for all. And that Mm. moment is really, you know, kind of celebrated in media all over the world. People see this as one of Clinton's shining moments. In fact, she what. Um, the context is she had just been in charge of trying to overhaul the U.S. healthcare system and was very um, kind of demonized in the U.S. press. And she goes to Beijing to kind of resurrect her image. And it really does mm. work in many, many respects. Um, she was very, she was widely praised for this speech. What we didn't hear, we as in the people who were listening back home to all of this, was the broader context of how that speech came about and also what was actually happening at this conference that Clinton was speaking about. The speech itself actually was based on decades of a global women's movement that had been arguing that women's rights were human rights. And Clinton had been in touch with these feminists. She had toured um, Southeast Asia and actually met people who were working on women's rights or human rights and working on feminist causes in other countries as well as her own and had been schooled by them. And they had taught her about the idea that women's rights are human rights, that the global feminist movement had been developing. Hmm. So Clinton kind of gets credit for that slogan, which when in fact it had been a feminist slogan and something that feminists themselves had been promoting for many years. I wonder what are some of the laws that were actually enacted specifically in the U.S. in the 90s that you would consider a real result of feminism in that decade? I mean, you've said in this book that very few, very few people in the 90s actually understood who most feminists were or what they were doing, but they actually got a lot done. This is where it's really a hidden history. It's such an interesting thing to think about because most of the significant changes did not happen on a policy level. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can talk about things like this was when the um, Family Medical Leave Act was passed, for example, Mm -hmm. or the Violence Against Women Act, which is actually quite controversial in feminist circles because it really was a very um, law enforcement heavy approach, which now with the rise of Black Lives Matter and other forms of feminism, we see that there's some real problems in that paradigm for addressing Mm -hmm. the problem of violence against women. But I believe that the biggest change was really a culture change, was really about the ideas of feminism and particularly ideas like intersectionality, right? The idea that our identities are fused. It's not just about gender. It's also about race and class and sexuality. And we can't separate one of those parts of our identity from the other, but also understanding the world. And so this is also a time when feminism becomes part of many other social movements. So there's a real strain of feminism within the labor movement that develops in which the, and that we can see the kind of fruits of today with things like the fight for 15 and the predominance of women and women of color as leaders of that movement. There is a strain of feminism that happens also kind of simultaneously in conjunction with this labor feminism and the environmental movement. 
and also some of the most major institutions in the United States, such as healthcare, law, academe, higher education. And you just mean like ladies getting jobs. Exactly. But not just ladies getting jobs, actually feminists getting jobs. And there's a real difference there. <laughs> that's that's right? an important distinction. Yeah. Yes. So people who see social change as kind of their life's work and that that's yeah. what they're going to, that's what they're going to do when they become a lawyer, or that's what they're going to do when they become a doctor or a professor, right? That's a really um, different kind of attitude. And we start to see women getting these kinds of jobs and really promoting change in other kinds of ways that aren't necessarily about lobbying in D.C., Yeah. Well, that's so interesting because it really does seem like so much of that then if you're seeing feminism in environmentalism and labor rights and all of these other aspects, it really is that women's rights are human rights. Exactly. They were really they were enacting that in some very, very core ways. The first anecdote in the like first page of the introduction of this book mentions the 2017 Women's March on Washington, which was the march that happened. Was it the day after President Trump was inaugurated? It was, right? Mm-hmm. So how how can you like connect that dot to feminism of the 90s? Well, what was fascinating to me to be, you know, working on this, finishing this book when that march emerged Mm. was that the narrative was like, Trump got elected and that's kind of sparked this resurgence of feminism. And all of a sudden people are getting in touch with their feminist politics. And here it comes. And it was kind of all about Trump. It's very Trump centered narrative. But when you looked at the signs that people were carrying in that march, the ideas that they brought to it, the reasons that they were so angry about Trump, they didn't, those those ideas, those motivations didn't just come out of thin air, right? They had been promoted by feminists for decades, since the 90s. A vision of a different kind of future had been promoted and really seized on by women and men across the country. And so it just didn't come out of, marches never spring out of thin air. They build on decades of organizing within local communities and on the national and state level. And, we've, and, that, and then you can get a march of the size of the 2017 march. So there's a way that the narrative that emerged really erased the decades of hard labor that people hmm. had put into the movement to raise consciousness that we saw really come to fruition at that moment. Well, it is really interesting to think about because I think especially even just in the last couple of years, compared to the feminism of when I was a kid or a teenager, you know, I think about like the definitions were so much more vague. There was the whole like man hater thing. Mm -hmm. There's so much more nuance now. And I think about some of the changes that have taken place just in the last couple of years. I think about Me Too. I think about Black Lives Matter. We have anti-abortion laws on the rise. We've got stuff like Gamergate and incel groups and, you know, police violence against people of color, against black people. How do you think 
the movement is different now? Or what is the most important thing for the movement to be doing right now? Well, I just love what you're outlining because it is this, it seems like a contradiction in a certain it's way. It's super confusing. It's like, well, how can we have this very strong, nuanced, um, diverse feminist movement of today and all of these terrible policies and this terrible president? And you could say the same thing about Black Lives Matter. How can we have this incredibly strong grassroots movement for racial justice and, you know, this and the rise of like horrific forms of white supremacy kind of coming out of the closet and feeling empowered Mm -hmm. to be even more present on the public stage. So I kind of want to, in a certain sense, it's not just feminism that is kind of confronting this contradiction. You could also say the same about the environmental movement. We've had some terrible rollbacks of things recently, right? And yet the environmental movement is also kind of stronger and more diverse and intersectional than ever before. And so there's a way that the stronger the movements get, the more there's a clamp down, right? (laughs) But Mm. what we're, and, and I do think though, increasingly what we're seeing is, I mean, even in the, the RNC these past few days, the Republican National Convention, they are co-opting the message of the movement. They're claiming they're on the side of black people, of women, of immigrants, right? They're, I mean, that's how powerful these movements are, that even those who are trying to clamp down on them and expunge them and deny them the vote and deny, you know, and basically undermine our entire democracy because they know the majority is on the side of social movements of, you know, Mm. um, and the only way to um, keep power is to basically erode our democracy. But, and then they also are feeling the need to kind of use the, be, not be explicit about who they are, but claim they are for some of the things that these progressive social movements are for. So it's a real conundrum. In, but it really is, I think, about the strength of movements provoking a kind of equal and opposite reaction, right? So you have a movement and then you have a backlash, you know, mm-hmm. and these two things play out um, simultaneously really throughout U.S. history. Sure. So uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, today, there are protests happening across the country because of another brutal thing that happened between police and an innocent black man. Uh, let alone any number of other really intense, horrible things happening globally, nationally, just in any given person's life these days. Where do you find hope? What do you look towards on a day when you're feeling particularly exhausted these days? I, I do find hope in the community, grassroots, organizing that is being led by young people, people of color, women of color, queer people. This, the organizing that is happening right now is I think really inspiring. And um, to hear young people talk about their visions for the world and about what they wanna see in, in the world and to watch them not just talk, but also organize <laughs> and also um, put things into practice is really inspiring. 
Well, Lisa, thank you so much. Your book is excellent. And this was such a great conversation. I appreciate it. Oh, it was such a joy. Thanks for having me. Lisa Levenstein's book is called They Didn't See Us Coming, The Hidden History of Feminism in the 90s. Be sure to check it out. And we've got one more thing you don't want to miss in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So today is September 1st. It is now officially September and next month is October and the month after that is November and the month after that is December, which I know you're like, yes, Greta, I know how the order of the months works. But if you're a word nerd like me, maybe you have also wondered why the month with sept in the prefix, which, you know, like even in French, set is seven is the ninth month. And octo, right, is eight, but it's the tenth month. Novum in Latin literally means nine. And decum means ten, but those are the eleventh and twelfth months, which like, what the f***? I don't know. Have you thought about this? Well, here's the story. The early Roman calendar only had ten months. It started with Martius and then went to Aprilis and then Maeus. I know, sometimes Latin is just sort of a joke in itself. But legend has it Romulus, who was the first ruler of Rome, set that up in like 700 BCE. But as I'm sure maybe you have even realized, a 10-month calendar doesn't line up with the way the Earth actually moves around the sun, right? Which ancient Romans figured out because they were some smart cookies. So Rome's second emperor, Numa Pompilius, added January and February to the calendar. And he just like smooshed them onto the beginning of the year and then shifted everything down. Which might seem really annoying and like, why would you do that? But what I will say in defense of January is that it's named for the Roman god Janus, who has two faces. So he's able to look into the past and forward to the future, which I think is really symbolically beautiful. And it turns out February is named after a purification ritual. So I don't know about y'all, but I'm definitely like making sure I'm going to take a bunch of baths in February. (laughs) I hope y'all enjoy what used to be the seventh month of the year, but is now the ninth month, which means we are officially three-fourths of the way into 2020, which I'm pretty sure has to be a good thing. Right? All right. The show is produced by me and Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We will see you on Friday.
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.